We're in a series from the little book of James called Wisdom for Relationships. It's not about marriage, although marriage is relationship, it's there. It could be working with people, working on a team, in a company, a business, friends, relationships. You know, two are better than one. A threefold cord's not easily broken. God puts people together, and you're stronger together than you are apart. I can run faster alone, but I can run farther together. That's a fact. And so uh, psychologically and physiologically and tests by the Navy SEALs, they prove that when you put somebody with somebody, they can endure pain and uh, uh, suffering longer. Because when you get in those groups, they suffer, boy. They, they pay the price to be bad. Well, some of you are not going to go out to the Navy SEALs. I'm, I'm sure of that, okay? James chapter 3 is where we'll go today. James wrote a little book called the book of James, and he offered up some wisdom on everyday problems, how to deal with your anger, managing your mouth, you know, cleaning up relational messes. And I guarantee you it's a lot better advice than you're going to get from Siri. And if you've been reading through this little book of James, a quick read, you'll notice there are a few themes that he says over and over again, kind of like he wants you and me as the readers to pay close attention to it. He emphasizes the importance of the practice of patience. Patience. He encourages Christians to take care of the vulnerable and the weak. And we'll see as we look in chapter three today, he repeatedly issues warning about the power and misuse of words that come out of our mouth. It, uh, uh, that's everybody. Everybody. Okay. In chapter one, the focus is, was on when to speak, when to listen. In chapter three, the focus shifts to how and what we choose to speak. And more than that, what's at stake when it comes to every one of us and the words that come out of our mouth? It can be very, very expensive. James begins chapter three this way. He says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers and sisters, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So he starts with the word to people who are in particular positions of influence, teachers, people who other people listen to. You could be in the political area arena as well, a coach with players. Anybody in a position that has to talk and deal with people on a regular basis, he says, you must be the most careful with your mouth. That kind of makes me sweat just a little bit. Then he continues, for all of us make many mistakes. Anyone who makes no mistakes in speaking is perfect. Well, that leaves us out. Okay. Because they're able to keep the whole body in check with a bridle. If we put bridles, uh, these bits, into the mouth of horses, we make them obey us. And it guides their whole big body. Or look at ships. Though they are so large, it takes strong winds to drive them. They are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, but it boasts great exploits. So with this, James lays the groundwork by naming something everybody in this room knows already. Our words matter. They make impact, good or bad. They give shape to the reality we live in a way that James says, we better pay close attention to it and take it seriously. Then he offers two funny metaphors to kind of illustrate. One's about a horse and the other about a ship. 
He says, both the destiny of the horse and the destiny of the ship are determined by this very small but incredibly significant piece of equipment. The bridle steers the big horse. The rudder steers the great ship. He says, in like manner, words steer your life. You shape your destiny. You shape the destiny of your children with the words you speak. You're so stupid. You'll never learn anything. You'll never get out of school. You'll never go to college. You'll never have a decent job. Watch what you say, not only to them, but to yourself. You must change what comes out of your mouth because words have the power of life and death. God said that. So let's powerfully shoot out what God says when it doesn't seem to be working in our lives. Well, you know, I've got three people that I know of that died from that. Well, I got 50 that didn't. Uh, Okay, and what's that got to do with who you are? My point is, watch out for what you say with that mouth. Here's a picture up here. I just picked it at random. It was the largest battleship of its day. It was the Bismarck. The Nazis produced that in World War II. It had uh, over a foot and a half of armor plating on it. And basically with the ships of the day, they couldn't touch this thing. It was so strong, so big, so heavy, it was massive. And yet the British launched an attack on it. Their torpedoes didn't do anything to damage it in any significant way except one. And the one torpedo hit the rudder, bent it, and the ship could only go in a circle. Now, unrepairable, they were able to encircle that great ship and sink it because of that little rudder they couldn't fix. Well, that that ship is in 15,000 feet of water, and your life will be too if you don't get control of that mouth. That mouth can be a blessing or a cursing. In 1984, there was a British writer and Scrabble fanatic by the name of Giles Brandreth. He predicted in the average lifetime, a person will speak 860,341,500 words. Whoa. My wife speaks that in a day. (laughs) Yeah, no. Okay. Now, just for reference, that's roughly equivalent to the number of words you would speak if you read the Bible 1,110 times out loud from start to finish. So the point James is making, those 800 million plus words may seem insignificant, but when you take them as a whole, they will determine the trajectory of your life and determine where you end up. Now, you think about it. Let me pause a minute just to say this. Uh, Several years ago, I was talking to one of my younger children, and that person, uh, she was demeaning herself and complaining, and and I can't do this and won't do that, and I'll probably not get this. You guys that have kids have heard it before as well. And I remember just jumping up, and I said, hey, wait a minute. That is not true. Let me tell you who you are. You are the seed of the righteous. You will inherit the earth. You will be mighty in the land. Wealth and riches shall be in your household. You will possess the gates of your enemy. And I went on to quote what God said about the seed of the righteous. That's my kid. And I don't care how you feel, how bad it may look. This is what God says your future is and who you are. Now shut up. And I, what am I doing? I'm speaking words of life into that negativity. 
And some of you do that as well. Well, I've got two children. I'm single. Uh, What husband? Here you go. You know, God opens blind eyes, and he can also close them, girls, so relax. (laughs) He got somebody for you, but you're going to have to quit closing the doors of opportunity with your mouth. Start saying what God said. You're in a legal matter. Start saying what God said. He's the lifter of your head, your vindicator, your rear guard. God will uh, acquit the just. So you got to start saying what God says and quit running your mouth. And when you're raised in a home, a family, a culture, or a neighborhood where it's all negative, that gets on you. And then it comes out of you. And you're shaping your life and you're sabotaging your life. Don't speak negatively about your situation. See, with our words, we land a job. With our words, we build intimacy. You build friendships. You build community. With your words, you build a family culture. Like my mother saying, I can hear it. Here I am way late in life, and I still hear that little bitty woman saying, we don't talk like that in this house. Any other moms in here like that? I was, you know, I raised in a military family, and she said, we don't talk like that in this house. She was enforcing the culture of that home with words that we speak or don't speak. Some of you look at me like, well, my mama never said that. Really? Well, she ought to whip your bottom then because we don't talk like that in this house. We ought to say we don't talk like that in this house either. We leave all our bigotry, our prejudice, our, our political ideology, our, our culture, nationality. Leave that at the door. Because you're a new creation in Christ. You're not slave or free, bond, white, black, Lutheran, or Methodist. You're a child of the living God. We have a culture to defend, the kingdom of God, all right? And if you're in this room and you're under the age of 18, with your mouth, you're building a relationship with your parents. Your words may have landed you in trouble. Your words may have gotten you a date. Your words may have lost that same date. Your words may have gotten you out of a parking ticket. That's for my wife. She argues with with the officer. I disagree with him. Words matter. Words impact our lives. Not only do they shape our external reality, they shape our internal reality as well. Before modern psychology was even talked about or a thing, Scripture indicates that if you get people talking, they start to understand themselves, which is what a psychologist will do. Some of you in this room are verbal processors. Others of you are married to a verbal processor, and you really know what I'm talking about. See, words shape reality. And if we keep reading in James, it becomes clear from verses 1 through verses 5. It sort of lays the groundwork for the main point James wants to build towards. Starting with the second half of verse 5, he introduces a new metaphor. He says, how great a forest is set ablaze by a small fire, and the tongue is a fire placed among our members as a world of iniquity. It stains the whole body. It sets on fire the cycle of nature, and itself is set on fire by hell. Woo, mercy. There's, it doesn't say that about my toe. just says that about my mouth, my tongue. There's a lot happening with those words. James compares the tongue to a spark, a fire, a flame. And the implication is that the words we speak don't just direct the course of our lives, but they have a resounding reality altering implication for everybody around us, your family, your children, those you work with. And like a fire, our words will spread. 
They will have impact. And I guess if any of you who are sort of familiar with forest fires know, you combine heat, oxygen, and fuel, it creates what they call in the fire department as the fire triangle. And when those three elements come together, you get a chain reaction of spark and flame, and generally one that's a bit erratic and hard to predict and way difficult to stop. And if you've been watching the news the last month, the fires out west were horrific, and we get a little glimpse of what a little spark can do and how it can be catastrophic. In the same way, James is saying, understand your words create a chain reaction. They set in motion a series of events, erratic, difficult to stop, destructive, not just for you, but everybody around you if you're not careful. And many of you listening to this message probably could tell me the effects of a chain reaction you lived in as well. See, maybe you spent time in a destructive relationship where instead of truth and affirmation spoken in love, you were always made to feel inadequate. Words told you time and time again, you were missing the mark. Maybe you had a parent who used words over and over again like, I'm so disappointed in you. Maybe you were part of a church where strict words of legalism grew into you a sense of shame that still is difficult for you to shake today until you learn more about the grace and mercy of God. A pastor told me many years ago at a seminar we did in this city, he said that as a teenage boy, he remembers the father coming up, grabbing the saw out of his hand and saying to him and shouting it, you can't do anything right. And he said, it haunts me to this day. Words, they go down like fire burns through your skin to the innermost being. Now that seems maybe a good place for all of us to stop as we're reading through this book of James and consider this question on the table for all of us. What kind of reality atmosphere are you giving shape to with your words that you speak? How would your kids answer that question? How would the people who report to you at work answer that question? See, what about your spouse? What kind of chain reactions are you setting in motion with the words that you say? Have you thought about it? James says, for every species of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creatures, man has tamed. But no one can tame the tongue, a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless the Lord and Father, and with it, we curse those who are made in the image and likeness of God. For from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. Let me pause and say, cursing here is not profanity. It's speaking evil upon another person. That Okay, does that make sense? It's not advocating cussing, but it's not cussing he's talking about when he uses the word cursing, okay? My brothers and sisters, this ought not to be so. Watch your mouth. So as we consider that question, what kind of chain reactions are my words setting in motion? So James offers two possibilities. He said, with our words, we either bless the Lord and the Father, or we curse those who are made in the image and likeness of God. And those options, those blessings or curses, are not just standalone concepts. I mean, they're part of a larger story all the way back to Genesis 1 since the beginning of time. And the story of the power of words begins in the very first chapter of your Bible, Genesis chapter 1. From the beginning, words have tremendous power. When God speaks, he's not just conveying information, but he's changing things, setting things in motion. 
For example, in Genesis chapter one, you're familiar with this text. Every day begins with this phrase, and God said, and God said, and God said. During the first three days, God speaks, and with his words, he creates the day and night. On day two, he speaks again and brings a dome called the sky. On day three, he speaks, and with his words, he creates the land and the sea. Now, this is really important, and notice what happens when he speaks on the next three days, days four through six. With each corresponding day, God fills the void that he just spoke into existence. He fills it. During the first three days, the night and the day, he fills with the sun and the moon. That's day four. The dome that is the sky, he fills it with birds. That's day five. The sea and the land, he fills with living creatures. That's day six. So those words were intended to tell us something about the nature and character of our God. And what we see is that when God speaks, his words fill voids. He fills voids. He brings life. He's the kind of God who sets in motion an ecosystem whereby no creature is forgotten. Immediately after God creates people using his words, we're told that he blesses them. Do you see that pattern? God brings something into being, then he affirms it verbally, he adds value to it, and he uses his words to bless. I love how A.W. Tozer sums up this part of God's character. This is what he wrote. He says, this word of God is the breath of God filling the world with living potentiality. God brings life. I mean, he walks up to a loser hiding and the Midianites are everywhere and he says, hey, I'm with you, almighty man of valor. See, he doesn't speak to where you are. He speaks to your potential, what he has in mind for you. Yeah, I mean, oh, that dude was, was, you know, he was, well, he was, he wasn't a courageous man, but God saw in him a courageous man and he brought it out with his words. What words are you speaking? See, who knows what potentials in this room? Who knows? You've been demeaned. Maybe you've been patronized. I don't know. You've got to be very careful in my own family, not my, my wife and children here, but my relatives or family, they talk a certain way. I don't like what they say. I don't even agree with what they say. You may have been raised in a Hispanic family, African-American family. Maybe your uncle, aunts, and different people had a vocabulary, how they saw life, and it contradicts what you read in the, in the Word of God. You've got, to, you've got to reject that. You've got to reject that and say what God says about you. Only God has the last word to say about you. Not a Democrat, not a Republican, not a male or female. God is the one that has the last say over your life. And when he gives you his plan for your life, don't you let other words contradict that. What's, what are they telling? And pretty soon, if I listen to you, I'll hear what comes out of you. I'll at least learn what crowd you're hanging out with or what channel you're watching. It'll come out of your mouth. Be careful. Be careful. See, living potentiality. I love that word. From the very beginning of Scripture, we see another story unfolding that has to do with words. In Genesis 3, using words, the serpent is deceptive. He says to Eve, hath God said? And he'll use a good friend. He'll use somebody to come up to you and say, oh, that's old stuff. I'll get with the program. God doesn't mean that. That's old-fashioned. And he'll, he'll contradict the Word of God because it brings life. 
But he, his words bring death. But he didn't care about you. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And the very first words the devil uses, I don't believe what God said. Half God said. Believe what Britney Spears says. Believe what Beyonce says. Believe what the culture says. Believe what uh, this politician says or this media says. No, no. You will live and breathe by every word of God. You will stand on what God said. Every time the devil came to tempt Jesus, what did Jesus do? He didn't say, well, I heard on CNN last night. Well, I heard on Fox News. No, he said, it is written. And he would quote scripture against the devil and stand on it. That's what you've got to do. See, because they'll tell you, well, you won't get a good job. Well, they won't hire you. We had a lady in here who's in the corporate world doing very well for herself. But she told me years ago, well, I'm a single African-American woman, never been married. It's going to be very tough for me in the corporate world. It's hard to get a booking. It's hard to get a job, blah, 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 blah. And then I've sat down and I shot God's word right back at her. And I says, in the kingdom of God, there's no male, no female, no Jew, no Gentile, no bond, no free, no Lutheran, no Episcopalian, no Catholic. You are one in Christ Jesus. You're a brand new creation. God's given you favor. God will give you promotion. God will give you what somebody else won't get in the natural because you're in the supernatural. You're part of the kingdom of God. Shut up talking like that. Doors are going to open for you. Favor is going to come upon you. And promotion comes from the Lord, not somebody else's endorsement. I know we love to quote Romans 8, 31. If God be for you, who can be against you? Okay, it's good. Let me reverse it. If God's against you, it doesn't matter who's for you. Hello, each get you some of that. See, but God was for you. So it doesn't matter what the protocol has been in the culture. God will override it. God turns the heart of a king any way he wants. He can turn favor towards you from an unsaved man. Get you a bigger view of God and a bigger view of who you are in God and you'll talk differently. See? So with words, the serpent convinces the man and the woman to eat from a forbidden tree, claiming it would be best for them when in reality, it just led to death. Talk about a chain reaction from that day to this day. And then the woman uses her words to deceive the man. And then the man uses his words to blame the woman. Then the woman used her words to blame the, the serpent. Words. See, it doesn't end there. Both of these stories, the story of blessing and the story of the curse, continue to this day. And they take deep root in our humanity, in your life and in mine. Essentially, in James chapter 3, the author is asking his readers, which chain reaction do you want to perpetuate, blessing or curse? Which chain reaction will you choose to live in with the words you speak every day? Boy, we are hostile in this culture right now. And we're believers and brothers and sisters in Jesus. There are some things we could just disagree on. And it ain't going to get you into heaven or hell. So dial down. You know, this is church. I'm not, when scripture is clear, we obey. When scripture is not clear or silent, you go to Romans 14. Your conscience and then he adds this. I'm so glad he did. Only judge not your brother. So you say, well, my conscience, I'm not doing that. Okay. But don't judge somebody else who does. And if you do, don't judge somebody who doesn't. All right? You're not going to convince them anyway. 
what this crazy, are we pro-vax, anti-vax? Are we, are we wear a diaper? What, what am I, what, what's the, the deal? Am I this, am I that? Did I wear a mask, not wear a mask? Should I go to school, what? Follow the best information you can get and your conscience. If I had clear scripture to give you, I would. But if there's not, follow your conscience and quit demeaning other people who see it another way. Maybe, maybe they didn't get information you got. Maybe they did. I don't know. I don't care. There's bigger fish to fry. I'm not going to beat up a church on your opinion on something that's not, doesn't have a biblical basis, no eternity in it. We could just agree to to disagree disagreeably. If you're going to stay married, you have to live that way. A good amen would be all right. You don't have to agree on everything to go to heaven. You don't have to agree on everything to be a good person. We're all raised in different families, homes, upbringing, different IQs, different ability to understand, different opportunities. They shape us. And so try to understand from where the other person is going. Follow your conviction. Follow your conscience. And if the Word of God speaks, you obey that. That outranks a Democrat or a Republican or any government official anywhere, right? That's got to be the highest authority when God speaks clearly. Okay but not when it's just a matter of conscience, prejudice, preference, or uh, uh, your, your conviction. But if Scripture's clear, we'll go there, all right? So will you speak words that bless, that move into empty spaces and bring life, or will you speak words that perpetuate a curse, a different story? Instead of being motivated by God's story, you're motivated by your own little kingdom, words that momentarily build up your ego at the expense of somebody else, Words of deception instead of words of truth. Words of anger because you didn't dare want to be vulnerable. It's just too risky. You know, a good thing to say to most anybody, unless it's clear scripture, I could be wrong. (laughs) How often do you hear that? I could be wrong. Now, if it's not mandated with clear scripture, that's a pretty good statement saying, if I get more info, I'm willing to say I missed it and change. It's kind of hard to argue with somebody showing, yeah. I'm a learner, I'm open, I'm listening. See, and I see dead people. Somebody call 911. <laughs> Come on, stay with me. This is hard, okay? So I'm doing my best. James makes it clear choosing that way of life will lead to our own demise, negative cursing. And in a statement kind of hard to swallow, he says, the tongue sets on fire the cycle of nature and is itself set on fire by hell. Now that word for hell used in verse six is the Greek word Gehenna. Gehenna was actually a valley just outside of Jerusalem. And we know James wrote from the city of Jerusalem. He lived there his entire life. He'd have been very familiar with that valley. Tradition held that certain kings of Judah had offered child sacrifices in Gehenna. So it was thought to be a place of death. Some referred to it as the Valley of Slaughter. Eventually, it became the site where garbage was thrown out. It was burned, and bodies were tossed there when they were dead just to be eaten by dogs. Not a friendly place to go. All right? James issues a strong warning. He says, friends, if you're not careful, your tongue can land you in a Gehenna, a nasty, burning, lonely place. Some of you may have said things you wish you could take back. 
maybe even this past week. Or maybe you've developed patterns of speech that have landed you in a place of deep isolation. And that loneliness can feel a lot like Gehenna. And here's the thing about chain reactions, and a lot of you know this. They perpetuate hurt generationally. Once you've been a victim to their erratic, unpredictable, burn-inducing pain, it's hard to find your way out of that particular story. So James ends this passage of Scripture with this statement. Does a spring bring forth from the same opening fresh water and brackish or salty water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, yield olives or a grapevine yield figs? No more can salt water yield fresh. Put another way, we can only speak words from where we are and who we are. And who we are has been largely shaped by the words that have been spoken to us. By whatever chain reaction you and I have been a part of has affected who we are. So how do we get in the right story? How do we get the right reality with our words that aligns with God's narrative, God's purpose, and God's will? See, when the tongue is hard, sometimes impossible to tame, alongside of that, we bring into that our own messy lives, our own history, our own complicated experience, and we can't figure out which way is up. And this is where James really begins the hardest work. So the first observation from this scripture, just three, is this one. First, you got to change where you stand. You have to change where you stand. Look at uh, Psalms 19, verse 14. I pray this every day. I don't always remember the address, but I always know the scripture. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Notice the first part of that prayer is a petition that God will help me align what I say, the words coming out of my mouth, with his will and his intention, that we would speak words of blessing. In the second part of that verse, the prayer makes this crucial acknowledgement. They acknowledge the Lord is my rock and my redeemer. So the person writing says, we know these two things have to go together. If my words are going to align with God's will, I got to know upon what I stand. God is my rock. God is my fortress. God is my redeemer. So we have to start with the same acknowledgement in our lives. Unless you first start and receive God's blessing, you can't bless other people. Unless God changes your heart, you'll never have a heart for other people. See, we first let the truth of God's love and redemption. That's just a fancy word for God being eternally for us. And unless I let that find its way to the core of my being, I'll struggle with words forever. And it'll be a losing battle. I'll be stuck in that other negative story because that awareness, the truth of God's heart towards us is where I find my identity. It's where we find our security. Without it, we become reactive and defensive. And we always feel like we have to prove something. So we tear others down. We boast. We gossip. But the proclamation, the Lord is my rock and my redeemer, is the author's way of saying, I'm okay, I know where I stand, therefore I'm free to bless others. And it's not related to anything I own or how much money I have or where I was born, I know who I am. And I watch preachers too, traveling the world, I see it all, the good, the bad, and the really ugly. And boy, I run across the name dropper. I was with so-and-so, and I was with so-and-so, and I, 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 and me, me. And the first 15 minutes are self-proclamations, and I turned to a friend, maybe Casey Treater, who I'm sitting with waiting, and I said, dude got a real security problem, doesn't he? 
doesn't know who he is, so he's got to make himself feel important by either putting others down or by what I wear. Oh, I got on $5,000 kicks. Yeah, but you're still overweight. You still have a lousy personality, but you're getting your security out of what you wear or who you know or who you were with, name dropping. You don't have to do that when you know God is for you. God is my rock. And my, if I drive in here in a $200,000 oil leaking, uh, <laughs> give me a car. <laughs> Kia? <laughs> what, well, Kia's a pretty good car now. Uh, but, but I mean, and I got an oil slick out in the parking lot. I'm just, if I've got my identity set, that car is not giving me identity or a $350,000 Lamborghini. I'm still the same guy sitting in that seat. Seat just costs more money, but I'm, I should be the same person irregardless. Whether I have a $5,000 purse or I've got a $98 knockoff, it's the same me. I saw a $98 knockoff and I said, I'll bet Cindy could not tell the difference in that purse. In fact, I was at the airport, this is a couple of years ago, and I saw it come, I saw a lady walk up with that bag, and I thought, dang, that's a nice looking bag. And I, get it, and I went over and I says, ma'am, that is a gorgeous bag. I haven't seen that one. Is that a new, she said, I got it in Mexico. It's a knockoff, paid 98 bucks for it. <laughs> she didn't care. She didn't care. Half the Rolexes are fake knockoffs, but it's You'll think I'm something. You'll think I'm somebody. See, I can't fix that. Only God can fix that in me. When I know my identity is not fixed to either how big the church is or how, how big the house is or how expensive the car is. No, it's who God said I am. I'm valuable. I've been born for a purpose. I'm fulfilling that purpose. Shoot, that's all you can do. And so I don't have to talk bad about anybody else. I'm confident in who I am and what I am. So this is why James acknowledges the importance of using our words to worship God. When we worship, we're recognizing what God's done in us in Christ, an act motivated by incomprehensible love towards you and me. James is saying that when we worship and it's authentic, there will be a ripple effect. Your words will be redeemed. They will reflect the speech of a person who has found their salvation, who is not threatened by the world or anything in the culture because I've got everything. I, in Christ, I possess everything. See, Dr. Martin Luther King may be one of the greatest examples of how words can shape a reality that aligns us with God's will. And this is quite remarkable if you consider all the words of hate that were spoken to him and about him during his lifetime. So instead of contributing to that narrative, instead becoming a part of the hate narrative that was destructive, he chose a different way. In 1957, he gave a speech, a sermon, and he made this proclamation, quote, returning hate for hate multiplies hate, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. So Dr. King was basically saying when we keep the wrong chain reaction going, we end up in Gehenna, up in a place of deep darkness. But Dr. King knew you can't just will yourself out of that hate. He knew we had to conform to the narrative of God or else we'll perpetuate the wildfires we've lived with all of our lives unless we can find a voice of love that's louder, truer, deeper, and more convincing than the deceptive words that have been spoken about us and to us. In one more sermon, Dr. King put it this way, by opening our lives to God in Christ, 
we become new creations. This experience, which Jesus spoke of as the new birth, is essential if we're going to be transformed nonconformists. Only through an inner spiritual transformation do we gain the strength to fight vigorously the evils of the world in a humble and loving spirit. See, unless I get a heart transformation, nothing's going to change. I'm going to speak with a broken, fallen heart. You want to control your tongue? Dr. King says you've got to have an inner transformation where you receive from Jesus Christ the unchanging security that comes from knowing my life has been redeemed. I am complete, lacking nothing. I'm a new creation. Ain't never been anything like me on the face of the earth. Never will they. And it's not based on my nationality or my IQ or my scores at school or my, my, uh, my, what I've merited by my good works, good or bad. It's a gift that God gave me. And I can only say thank you for that. See, olive trees can't produce figs. Your old nature, it'll repeat the same old words the rest of your life. This week, next week, next year. You're in a situation and you're tempted to use your words for self-promotion. Or you're tempted to inflict pain on somebody else. Or to gossip about somebody who's not present. Just stop for a moment and say to yourself, Self, the Lord is your rock and your redeemer. Sit in that truth for a moment and see what happens. So the first observation is about how we see ourselves. The second one has to do with how we see others. So we have to change what we see. Number two. Say so James doesn't tell us how to do that, but he does give us a hint. He says in verse 9, with the tongue we curse those made in the likeness and image of God. So the implication here is that we should not curse others because every person, every human being holds a unique, special God-given dignity. That means to be part of an image bearer of God is to have his representative likeness. I ought to be a little more like him. I ain't perfect, but I ought to be more like him now than I was when I first came to Jesus. James is saying that each time we curse another person, it's like we're cursing God himself. Now, I know some of you are sitting here and you're thinking what I'm thinking. Okay, that's great, Rick, in theory, but you haven't met my mother or my spouse or my 13-year-old stepson or my boss. The image of God might be there in theory, Rick, but in reality, their behavior seems to align itself more with Darth Vader. I get it. I mean, I really do get it. But here's a couple of things to remember. James acknowledges this is tough. This isn't easy. You know, I have a friend whose family motto is doing good things is hard. She says it mostly applies to her and her dog. <laughs> I love that. In some ways, it could be the motto for this passage. To change our vision so that we see the image of God in others is difficult, especially when that image is blurred or it's buried way, way down in somebody. But here's the beautiful reality. When we change our vision and we speak words that affirm the image of God in another, we actually bring that person closer to realizing their real identity in Christ. We change their reality. That's why scripture is loaded with commands about encourage one another, edify one another, build one another up. See, as a community, we're responsible for the growth and formation, not just of ourselves, but for our neighbors. I saw a sticky note on a computer that had three simple sentences about people. Number one, always remember their humanity. Number two, you might be the one person today who gives them a sense of dignity. And number three, always remember in whose image they were made. 
So live in that this week with those words. Revisit them before you speak. And last, number three, you have to change what we say. You have to change what we say. We have to practice being people who speak words of blessing. And before you speak, ask yourself, will these words encourage? Will they build up? Are they honest? Will they fill a void? Do they communicate the best interest of the person to whom I'm speaking? Do they align with God's ultimate command that we love? You ought to think about that before you post on social media. But is this going to come back to haunt me? Or is this something that, that will build up? I remember I'd, holding a point of disagreement with an outstanding uh, African-American pastor in North Carolina, friends, and he posted something about white preachers, and there's probably a lot to, to post, but what he posted wasn't right, and it was quite easy to defend. So when I approached him, I said, with, with all respect, I'm, a, I'm a, an advocate for most of what you post uh, and heartily agree. However, this post does not reflect la, 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 la. And because I didn't accuse, I just quoted some facts, he came back and we became best friends because I didn't put him in a category blanket and he didn't put me in a blanket category. And that's, that's something you have to really be willing to have a good heart to change your mind about. We try to throw everybody into uh, one image or one, uh, I'm looking for a word, it doesn't come to me for the moment, but we want to stereotype, stereotype people by race, by, by gender, by occupation, by where they're from. We want to stereotype. Don't do that. Don't let people, everybody doesn't think the way you do <laughs> or me. Okay. So arguing never solved anything for me, never did. And I'm a good arguer, but it doesn't change anybody just quit. Find a way to be, to drop, to drop anything that speaks about harsh or, or I'm attacking your point of view. So I, I want to be seen as right. And some of you always have to be right. That's going to get you in Gehenna. You do that in marriage and you'll be in divorce court. You cannot always be right. You, you can be right personally, but if you have to be right in relationships all the time, you won't have many, just be you yourself and I. That's it. Don't do that. See? So consider before you speak to a coworker in a meeting, before you greet a waitress this week, before you address a spouse after a long day at work, make it a goal that every person you interact with is going to be better, will come away blessed in the truest sense of the, of, of the word because of the words you've spoken to them. I just text somebody going through a national ministry, going through a legal battle that's got to be producing more stress than anything I know. And I just, I've sent all week, I've prayed personally, and I've sent a text or a scripture, and I know this person is speaking today in another state before they return home, and I just said, don't you forget today that God is for you, and I am too. I love you, Rick. Boom. And I, I got the message back there. Be, be, be generous. Be, encourage. I mean, that's a bad thing. Don't be saying, well, yeah, Glorious was diagnosed with this. I know 14 people that died with that. Oh, great. Thank you. Thank you so much. No, give people encouragement. Give them a scripture. Give them a say, well, that's not going to happen to you, my brother. This God is for you. 
God will vindicate you. God, God is your rear guard, the lifter of your head. He will confound your adversary. They'll come at you seven ways and flee ten or whatever. I don't know. But they, God's, just give encouragement to people. Let, your, let the words of your mouth bring hope and life to somebody. You're going to get through this. You're going to make it. You know, now unto him who is able to do above all you ask or think. Give people, use your words to build people up. Don't worry about, well, now what are all the details? Shut up. Just don't get all the details. It's encourage. Just encourage people. It's cheap. It doesn't cost a lot of money to encourage people and to say, okay, you're going to be smarter this time. It's going to work out better. Okay. Can you do that? I, I, I want to close with a story that sort of draws us all together powerfully, and it illustrates the reality that words can change a life. It's a story I read a couple of years ago in a Reader's Digest. In 1991, the rabbi moved to the town of Lincoln, Nebraska with his wife and five children. And just a day after they, they moved in, the phone rang, and the voice on the other end started hurling racial insults at the rabbi, calling him Jew boy and quite violently insisting that he and his family were not welcome in this town. The next day, a package arrived at the rabbi's house, and it contained anti-Semitic materials and an unsigned card that read, the KKK is watching you, you scumbag. There was a man in the community named Larry Trapp, who was the leader of the local KKK chapter. Rabbi Wiesner kind of guessed that's where the threats were coming from, from old Larry. So he found out he was right. So Rabbi Wiesner found Larry's phone number, and once a week, the rabbi would make a point to call Larry. Now, of course, Larry never picked up the phone. So every week, the rabbi would simply leave a message on his recorder, a word of encouragement or love, and he would say things like, Larry, there's a lot of love out there, and you're not getting any of it. Don't you want some? And then he'd hang up. The next week, He'd call again. He'd leave another message offering to drive Larry to the grocery store if he needed it because he had heard Larry had diabetes and both of his legs had been amputated. And this went on for months. And no answer. But Rabbi Wiesner kept at it. Then late one night, the rabbi's phone rang. It was Larry Trapp. Larry simply said, I want to get out of what I'm doing, but I don't know how. In other words, Larry wanted to change his reality. And that night, the rabbi and his wife drove to Larry's home. They spent about three hours speaking with this KKK leader, and a friendship sort of began. Over the next several months, Mr. Trapp left the Klan. He made a public apology to those he had harmed. He began attending synagogue with the rabbi and his family. And pretty soon, Larry's health got even worse, and he moved into the rabbi's home, where he was cared for by Rabbi Wiesner and his family until his eventual death right there in the rabbi's home, the very same place he mailed words of hate, he died surrounded and embraced by love and friendship. Think about that. I love that image. I think of that story, and I'm brought back to the image of Jesus on the cross, you know, in his final painful moments of life, granting forgiveness to the crook next to him, asking the Father to forgive the people who had killed him, until the very end, Jesus used his words to continue the work of the Father to fill the world with living potentiality. For more information on Summit Christian Center, visit summitsa.com.